Hello everyone, before I start, if you'll forgive me, I have a podcast recommendation for you all. It's called the British Food History Podcast. I recommend it to you on the rigorous selection process that I really like it, and maybe you will too. Also, it's a great and rich subject. Most of all, though, I really like the host, who is Dr Neil Buttery, and he really knows what he's talking about. He's an author, a PhD in the subject, he's got a really good blog as well, actually. But the main thing is he's an absolute and total enthusiast, and that, to me, is the heart of independent podcasting. He's doing it because he loves his subject primarily. He's a warm and lovely host. He has lots of really great guests. So Diane Perkis of The People's History of the Civil War fame, she was there, for example. She's now done The People's History Approach to Food. There's one just out on medieval food and one I absolutely loved on school meals. How I laughed at that one and cried just a little bit at the memory of the tubes in school liver. So much yuck. Anyway, it's great. Give it a go on your normal podcatcher, the British Food History Podcast with Dr. Neil Buttery. Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. everyone and welcome to the History of England, episode 375, Division. Now look, last week I shamelessly and most unprofessionally left you with a dramatic and cliffhangery kind of statement. I am sorry. It was just tawdry and populist. I feel so ashamed. Still, what was this grenade that the Scottish commissioners had lobbed into the English body politic? And why did it knock the growing prospect of a peaceful outcome over Midwicket for six? Well, the Scots were worried about how things were going. I'm not suggesting for a moment that they wanted to derail a peaceful settlement and condemn the Three Kingdoms to war, far from it. But as I previously stated, ad nauseam I believe, it was essential for them that it was the right kind of settlement, the right kind of peace. They did not trust Charles anymore after all the evasions and half-truths, and who can blame them? They did not want Charles patching things up with the English Parliament and then appearing over the border to rip up the most perfect kirk and impose bishops upon them once more. So, England must become Presbyterian. The shelving of the root and branch petition, the apparent moderation of Pym, Hamden and the reformers put the wind up where it really had no right to go. Plus, 
It seemed to them that the arch insanuary and the big danger to them all, the king's right-hand man, the lord with the finger on the button of an Irish army, was going to escape destruction, and that would never do. So, the Scottish commissioners got their best wordsmith on the job, Alexander Henderson, who'd penned the national covenant that had captured the imagination and aspirations of a nation. And he broke out his Ollivander's box with his golden quill with core of phoenix feather and penned a proclamation to make the Scottish cause rise from the prospect of the ashes ahead. The Declaration was a bitterly written document, and it had two main messages. Firstly, it demanded that Strafford's trial must go ahead immediately. Stop dragging your feet, you darned Sassanacs. Mercy to the bad is cruelty against the good. Better one perish than unity, they declaimed. The date is very important here. It is the 24th of February, which in a few centuries will be my brother's birthday. That, though, was not the reason. The reason was Strafford. That very day, he was due to come before the Lords to make his formal responses to the accusations made against him. The Scots needed to stiffen the sinews of the listening Lords. Secondly, the Declaration demanded the abolition of the Episcopy in England. This was even more explosive and the king went bonkers. He hauled the Scots commissioners in front of him. Robert Bailey in his letters reported that the king was livid, inflamed as he never was before. One of the other commissioners and co-author of the National Covenant, Archibald Johnston of Warriston, might have been a bit alarmed at the level of reaction he saw. The king has gone stark mad at it. Well, no wonder. There was ranting, or probably knowing Alec Guinness, restrained but evident fury. Charles threatened to denounce the declaration and to make the commissioners pay for having printed it. The fact that it had been printed and found its way onto the streets, now that was a major escalator of the crime. It quadrupled the offence, because this meant popular rabble-rousing, public coercion of the king. The fact that it had been printed as a handbill, and therefore as easy as possible to circulate a single page, made it clear that the Scots wanted as many people as possible to see this declaration. Now, at the meeting there was Scottish backpedalling. Oh, no, King, we didn't mean to intervene in English politics. Yeah, right, thought Charles. Now, there are a few things. I don't want to go overboard, but indulge me. Firstly, here were the Scots, supposedly here to negotiate a treaty for Scotland, playing politics with England, trying to whip up the London mob. And the Scots had gone precisely and professionally for the most delicate of issues, around which the King and the Reformers were carefully dancing. For Charles, both these issues, the life of his servant Strafford and the role of the divinely appointed bishops, were non-negotiable. So how to interpret this? I am presenting currently the case for the prosecution that the Scots were paying power politics with insufficient regard for the prospect of peace, that they had taken out a gun and pressed it to the collective temple of the Junto and wider reformers, that they must not make peace that did not fit with the needs of Scotland. They were wielding the big stick against their allies. They knew full well that the English reformers could not achieve their aims without the Scottish army at their back. So they had the reformers over a barrel, just to mix my metaphors. There are other interpretations, though, or indeed nuances. One is that the commissioners were working with a faction of the Junto, the more radical side, the likes of Warwick, 
Presbyterian to the core, supporters of the Root and Branch Bill. It seems possible that it was not the Scots who had printed the handbill. John Adamson, the historian, believes it to have been Warwick's bro, the Earl of Holland. Jonathan Healy also suggests that Warwick just called in his allies, the Scots, and that the radicals of the Junto initiated this as a tactic and therefore were every bit as responsible as the Scots were. There's another suggestion that whether it was the Scots or no who initiated it, Charles was not as angry as he might have seen and he made out, because actually this might be that this suited him just fine, because it revealed a fault line amongst the reformers. Maybe here was the rock on which he could wreck the ship of opposition. The likes of Bedford, Pym and Hamden had not wanted to push the issue of Episcopy now. They wanted to get to a piece which had looked tantalisingly close and so they'd held back on that issue. It's very probable, for example, that if simply following his desires, Hamden would have supported the abolition of the bishops. So, Charles saw this declaration as driving a wedge between the moderates of Bedford, the radicals of Warwick, and he could achieve a solution with the moderates. The consequences of peace, as I suggested in my flamboyant declaration last week, were nonetheless dire because Pym and the moderate reformers could not afford to split from the Scots. However much they hated this, that would have been Charles's golden scenario, but Pym couldn't afford for that to happen. Hated or loathe it, his giddy was hitched to the Scots. But all were aware that this declaration and the abolition of the Episcopy was way too far for many in Parliament. Maybe only 130 MPs would support it at this time. I think I said that before, haven't I? Moderates in the Commons, the Lords and in the Court were now showing signs that things were getting out of hand. Reform was going too fast, too far. Whoa, Silver. People like George Digby, Edward Hyde, Culpepper, Falkland, who had all supported the need for reform, were now shuffling towards the King. They still wanted a resolution based on the concessions given and to have Lord removed. But Simmons' Jews in Parliament called them the Episcopal Party, the Church must be reformed only to the days of Elizabeth. It must not be transformed by a root and branch bill. <clears throat> Charles was, again, not an idiot. I mean, albeit, he commits some howlers. But he saw now that he could build a party in Parliament, a party of moderate royalists who could stop these reformers in their tracks. The historian Conrad Russell believed that within a few hours of the meeting of the 24th of February, Charles had abandoned the strategy of settlement with Bedford and was concentrating instead on building a royalist party. Indeed, he pushed the issue. So on the 27th of February, he had Digby raise the issue of the Scots' intervention in a parliamentary debate so that the moderates could then come to his defence, come to his banner. He was actually fanning the flames of this and exploiting the ever-present fear amongst moderates of social upheaval, of the mob, of chaos. Some people will put no difference between reformation and alteration of government. Hence it comes that divine service is irreverently disrupted, petitions tumultuously given, and much of my revenue detained or disputed, Charles warned. The Venetian ambassador reported home that behind the scenes, Charles warned whoever he could get his hands on that, to paraphrase, they were all going to hell in a handcart. The people might be encouraged to 
shake off the yoke of monarchy. And if they did, they'd be coming for the rest of you, and apply themselves to abase the nobility also, and reduce the government of the realm to a complete democracy. No! Horror of horrors! Democracy is such a fall at a word in the 17th century. Digby, in challenging Parliament on the Scots paper, denounced the tumultuous assemblies of the people. He painted a picture of a tyranny of Presbyterianism and warned that the bishops would simply be replaced by a pope in every parish. Worse, going back to that four letter word again, if we make a parity in the church, we must come to a parity in the Commonwealth. This, then, is the formation of the royalist message all through the forthcoming year and at the Restoration. The monarch stood for permanence, social stability, the maintenance of the established social order. The king was forming a party with a manifesto, philosophy and rallying cry. He does seem finally to have learned something from his failure to succeed with the same strategy in Scotland. Now, it might be nice at this point to briefly nip across the channel and see what the Europeans thought of all this. Very briefly, Spanish knickers were in a bit of a twist. Philip was fearing the worst and was reported as saying that it was imperative that we do not lose the king. Should that country become a republic, I have no doubt I will lose my province of Flanders. Count Olivares warned the Imperial Council that a resulting alliance between the English and the Dutch would form a union of neighbour republics from which could be feared an irresistible invasion of all Europe. Bah, In France, the English ambassador, the Earl of Leicester, was hearing similar dire views of English fortunes. The Earls of Leicester, just FYI, are now Sydney's. Not Dudleys anymore. The Dudleys are all gone. They're all over. Robert Sidney, the current Earl of Leicester, was a rather hapless, dithery sort of bloke who can't decide between the King and Parliament all the way through, and who became Lord Lieutenant of Ireland after Strafford, but resigned in 1643, having never set a foot there. His sons, though, Philip Sidney and Algernon Sidney, would fight for Parliament, and Algernon Sidney would die the darling of the good old cause. Anyway, that's for the future. For now, Leicester reported that they begin to talk here already as if England were half lost and that the English nation dares not or will not look the Scot in the face. There was even a rumour that Protestants were plotting that Charles should be replaced by the Winter Queen. Richelieu, however, was a man made of iron and had none of the apocalyptic fears of the Spanish. Tosh, he said. In French, obviously, so possibly something like a tush. Not sure. Anyway, England today has become a nation useless to the rest of all the world and consequently of no consideration. Ouch, that is so cutting. Les Français, sacred blue. So, when the Prince of Orange came seeking a marriage alliance between his lad William and Charles's lass Mary, Henrietta made a counter-suggestion of an alliance with France Richelieu said, no, no, no. And so it was the Dutch to whom Charles turned and history would be made. Now I know, I know you're all waiting to hear about Strafford and how his response to the accusations of Parliament would go, but I'm sorry, 
We're not going to get that into that until next week. There's plenty of time for it. More importantly now, it would be good to have another chat about religion. You know it makes sense. I realise it's not particularly sexy to the modern ear. We want to hear about democracy, freedom, liberty. But the fact remains that the health of the soul for eternity was far more important to most 17th century Europeans. And who are we to say they were wrong? Charles then had apparently accepted that some compromise even over the church was required. I mean, it has to be said that his announcement that the church would be modelled on Queen Elizabeth's time is worryingly vague. What exactly was that? Charles had already made that sort of announcement before and his idea of the Elizabethan church had turned out to differ wildly from what most of us had been living with. Still, let's give the lad the benefit, shall we? Charles had called in a couple of divines to him in January to help him out, an Irishman, the Archbishop of Ireland, James Usher, and a Welshman, the Archbishop of York, John Williams, who had just been sprung from prison where Lord had kindly popped him. They came up with a scheme to try to bridge the gap between Lordianism and Presbyterianism, something of a challenge. But it had a sort of stripped-down episcopy, which they claimed took them back to the early church, a key desire always of Protestantism, of course. It seemed some aspects of this had the king interested. Incidentally, while we're on it, James Usher is the bloke, I did not know this, who worked out that the earth was created around about tea time on the 22nd of October, 4004 BC. Give an hour or two either way. I did know that was the figure. I had a Bible once with dates in the margin, but did not know who came up with it. Wild. The remarkable thing about the 1640s, or one of the remarkable things about the 1640s, is that the rain fell on the ground of religion and a thousand desert flowers bloomed. In a couple of generations, this would lead Voltaire to remark that if there was only one religion in England, there would be a danger of despotism. There were two. They'd cut each other's throats. But there are 30, and they live in peace and happiness. Well, it would take a while and a lot of throat cutting to get to that point, but the 1640s and 50s is when, despite the Cavalier's best efforts in 1660, the stopper was taken out of that bottle. I got the Voltaire quote from Jonathan Healy's book, The Blazing World, by the way, and he follows it up with another butte from Monsieur François-Marie Arouet, who also remarked that England had 42 religions, but only two sources. I was left struggling with that a bit. I mean, I'm OK on the religions thing, and there's gravy, but I can't think of a second source. Anyway, it's not just Arminianism that was at dispute. For many, the Elizabethan settlement had been unfinished business. We'd been through all of this. But by her death, almost all the separatism had disappeared. So just a few so-called Brownists. Puritans might hope for more, but tended to concentrate more on the reformation of manners within the church. One impact then of Lord and Charles was to blow this sky high. And the disagreements in the 1640s went deep. And among ordinary people, not just the MPs and the gentry, this concerned everyone. On the one hand, then, the Church of England now needed reformation. But now the Puritans were off the leash looking for radical change as well. The Scots were in town and another model of church organisation was being discussed and promoted in the vast wash of pamphlets and cheap publications and handbills. Seriously, during 1641, censorship begins to fall over and there is an explosion 
explosion of print. We'll come to that later at some other time. Anyway, the Scots had strengthened the more radical Calvinists in their desire for a Presbyterian organisation of the church. As you probably know better than I, Presbyterianism did away with the idea of bishops and replaced governance with a consistory of elders of the parish. Hence George Digby's crack about there being a pope in every parish now. Presbyterianism was focused on uniformity and compliance as much as was Catholicism and the Church of England. But among the desert flowers, there's now also another species, independency or congregationalists. They felt even more strongly that the way to God was not only through individuals but groups of like-minded people who came together and worshipped in their own way. They were therefore, by definition, separatists and pluralists. There could be no one model. Presbyterians wanted to transform their national church to a more thoroughly Calvinist model. Independents thought a national church would inevitably involve some people telling the others what the right way was to God rather than through the scriptures, and that in their view was wrong. It is by and large through independency, through the advocacy of political leaders like Henry Vane Jr. and Oliver Cromwell, that the idea of religious pluralism and toleration would at last begin to dig deep roots and get official recognition. Now, I thought I'd use the work of one Catherine Chidley to illustrate what Congregationalists believed, and this gives me a chance for a quick digression, so sorry, Anjun San, about the role of women generally in the civil wars. So, there was a review for the podcast on Apple a couple of years ago, I think, which hurt a little bit. The blow was very nice, but took a star off, a whole star, mark you, for being a bit of a sausage party, and I quote, the expression did make me laugh. Does the sausage in question imply a particularly male love? of pork-based offal tubes, or does it have to, something to do with the male anatomy? Do not send me a postcard on that one. I recognise this is something of an issue. Actually, it's quite hard because the political narrative in particular is so driven by men and women almost universally excluded, which is why figures like Eleanor of Aquitaine, Margaret Paston and Margaret Beaufort are so attractive to cover in these things. And I have done a few episodes focused on social history where it is a bit easier to get women into the story. Anyway, that's enough navel-gazing. Must do better. Less sausage. And you might hope that the Civil War will be easier. And to an extent it is, though not as dramatically so as you might wish or think. Politics was still very much led by the blokes. So I was reading a book by Antonia Fraser called The Weaker Vessel, and she sort of lays out the various ways in which women were actively involved in events and which show up in the historical record. So we'll go through a few of them in general before we get to Catherine. Obviously, there is the impact people had that's difficult to see, but without doubt, of course, existed everywhere. Women having opinions on political matters as much as men, despite being excluded from the official debate and exercising influence through others. And there are higher profile stories of that kind of influence which really do show up, like the one I've mentioned of Lucy Hay, the Countess of Carlisle. There are, in addition, a number of women writers and thinkers, whether very public, like Margaret Cavendish, or rather more privately based, like diarists and writers such as Lucy Hutchinson. And they are fundraisers, women who come forward with personal and household valuables for the cause. Then in the wars, there are a bunch of stories that feel to me very like the Margaret Paston kind of thing. Owners of landed estates run, managed and defended by women while their menfolk are away at the wars or dead. So, 
Brilliana Harley in Herefordshire, for example, Charlotte, Countess of Derby, and her defence of Latham House. There's a few of those, and there's also stories of people like Jane Horwood who get involved either in royalist intelligence and resistance or trying to help the king escape from various fortresses. Then there's a whole series of stories with a slightly long-suffering feel to them in some cases of women coping with and managing the family, keeping the wheels turning while the blokes go off and fight or do the glorious stuff of politics for which the civil wars are so well known. I am thinking, for example, of Lady Anne Fanshawe, through whom we see something of the impact of being uprooted from a comfortable life by war and discord. She writes letters about moving to royalist Oxford. And there's Elizabeth Lilbourne, such a story, married to a right wick bugger, as I think James Herriot's clients would have called him wick, meaning stubborn, stiff-necked, to the extreme sort of thing. John Lilbourne. Throughout it all, there is Elizabeth getting passionate about the level of cause, distributing leaflets, organising petitions to have her husband freed at various points, all the while having to manage a big family. And all she gets in Lilburn's writings are complaints about his wife's attempt to calm things down a bit, find some compromise and think of the good of his family. Quite a lot of similar stories to that. Mary Overton, wife of Richard Overton, for example, as well. Many of these latter stories, and one of the glories of the civil wars, are about more ordinary people getting their place on the stage of history as individuals, as named individuals, though even the Lilburns came from lesser gentry, actually, and in Elizabeth's case, a merchant background. There are exceptions to that, though, and one of these was in the ancient tradition of the prophetess, or the visionary. It's a role for women that had run throughout the medieval world. Think of Julian of Norwich in the 14th century, or indeed Joan of Arc. Usually, women with a mystic experience were treated with respect and even reverence. So, there will be a run of such people, and it sort of ties together with the importance of providence to the Protestant mind. The idea that God has a direct impact on day-to-day activities, that he may well be directing your actions, and therefore it's very important to think long and hard about God, what God's will is, And unfortunately, of course, as we know, God does work in very mysterious ways sometimes. So, very often, Parliament will call a halt to all its proceedings and all go and pray hard about what's best to get some revelation about the difficult challenges ahead. They are a very serious bunch. So it was with one Elizabeth Poole, who seemed to have been a thoroughly ordinary person in all other ways, in the sense of them being nothing grand about them socially. We are, of course, all special in our own waves, and we are all individuals, except me. In 1648, her prophecies advised against the killing of the king, and the council were really worried and concerned about this, and they talked and they prayed with Elizabeth Paul for a good couple of days before making their decision. They still chopped his head off, of course. Well... Do get in touch about all of this and make any suggestions you like. My task, of course, is to weave it into the narrative, but ideas always welcome. Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. 
We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. So anyway, it's in religion where there was some greater scope for women to drive events, express ideas, which is where we come to Catherine Chidler's example as an illustration of the growing religious debate. No longer was it just about Arminianism and Calvinism within the Church of England. Now there was a growing range of religious practices that could not be encompassed or comprehended within the existing church. So, the Scots' proclamation and mission included using the power bestowed on them by their army, the power bestowed on them by their eloquence and faith, to bring England to the true church, to the Kirk. Four ministers came with the commissioners, specifically with a mission to evangelise and convince, and their sermons and pamphlets found a very willing and attentive audience. But resistance and other ideas were also brought to life by Lord's reforms, and before long... The Scottish ministers were complaining that they must work to satisfy the minds of many in England who loved the way of New England better than that of the presbyteries used in our church. And one such will be the Chidleys. Catherine Chidley then was probably born around the turn of the 16th century in Shrewsbury and we have absolutely zero record of her background and early life. The first record we have any record of her is in 1616 when she marries a man, a tailor, one Daniel Chidley. You see my problem with sausages. Catherine then flits across the record of history because in 1626 she and her husband were reported to the church courts for non-attendance. The local vicar had a running battle with a conventicle that met regularly and it seems the Chidleys went there instead of to the parish church. I should explain conventicle quickly. Sorry if I have done so before. I've done it over and over in the history of Scotland, but I don't think I've done it here. So many blessed podcasts, they all get jumbled up in my head like socks in a tumble dryer, like some sort of Kafkaesque dream sequence. Anyway, conventicle basically just meant a meeting, but it increasingly became a specifically religious meeting outside the official church. Unlicensed preachers or individuals might go there, or there might be readings of the Bible, that sort of thing. By the 1630s, in many places, especially with an Arminian bishop like Wren at Norwich, attendance at conventicles began to outnumber those at parish churches. Catherine was also reported because she refused to be church. Churching, you might remember, was that rather lovely-sounding old tradition of blessing women after they'd given birth. Sounds rather nice, everyone to gather and coo a bit. Not sure you'd agree. Catherine, anyway, thought it was all flummery and superstitious nonsense. So, essentially, Catherine was probably something of a Puritan, inclined towards separatism at this point, but not all the way there yet. She continued to have her children baptised at the local parish church, for example, though that might be because you could get some serious jip if you did not. Jip, by the way, I learn, is a 16th century word. I take it to mean getting told off, but apparently it used to be originally a word used only towards insulting horses. Nice, isn't it? So many horses around back then, they had their own form of insult. Anyway, Catherine and Daniel, back to them, had a few children, including two Daniels. 
I believe we may have discussed the practice of having more than one child with the same Christian name. People were super keen to have children with their own forename, so they went for belt and braces just in case one of them dropped off the perch. One of Catherine's children was Samuel Chidley, who would also be a very well-known religious figure and writer. At the end of the 1620s, then, the Chidleys moved from Shrewsbury to London, maybe because they wanted to find more freedom to practice as they wished in the relative anonymity of London, maybe for working opportunities. There are so many reasons to move to London. With any short time, Daniel Senior moved up in the world and gained the freedom of the Haberdashers Company in 1632. But their real passion was religion, and they seemed to have become fully-fledged separatists, setting up conventicles with others like John Dupper and John Lilburn. Catherine then jumps into the public eye in 1641. The debate about religion was constant and furious. The Scots were very much joined by many Puritans who also wanted to adopt the Presbyterian model, and the pamphleting war was intense. One, Thomas Edward, was an English Presbyterian, and he, like many, were as disapproving of the independence as they were of the Church of England. They mocked what they saw as the chaos of independency, the lack of authority and order. They trusted not one whit in the ability of ordinary people to preach or understand the word of God. Sir Abs Thomas wrote, How can the people, three or four visible saints or more, joined into a church, examine and try the learning, gifts, soundness of men for the ministry, who are themselves ignorant in all kinds of learning, and may be weak and injudicious? Well... This kind of thing got Catherine proper worked up, and she published her first tract, an 81-page document called The Justification of the Independent Churches of Christ. Now, Catherine was very aware that women had to tread carefully in this world of debate, and her arguments are hooped around with various bits of self-deprecation and deference to men, acknowledgments of her own unworthiness. Women writers were often very conscious of this and forced to apologise in advance for their sex. So Elizabeth Warren, for example, a pamphleteer in 1645, even included in one tract, We of the weaker sex have hereditary evil from our grandmother Eve. This was very much the way of it with women preachers too, and there are a number of women who preach in the independent churches, there's the example of Mrs. Ottaway, so-called mistress of all the she-preachers in Coleman Street, who was capable of preaching for well over an hour. Unfortunately, St. Paul had written in 1 Corinthians 14, 34-35, Let your women keep silence in the churches, for it is not permitted unto them to speak. And so women who were brave enough to stand out had to run a gauntlet of misogyny. They might be called brazen-faced, or prattler, or worse. There was a poem doing the rounds in 1641 called Lucifer's Lackey. It went like this. When women preach and cobblers pray, the fiends in hell make holiday. The Puritans and Presbyterians were as hard on this element as any of the other churches, and they condemned the independents for their latitude. William Prynne, for example, Presbyterian himself, condemned them for including bold, impudent housewives in their governance and meetings. So Catherine pays the price of admission. She begs for indulgence that her intervention is not laid down in a scholar-like way. 
But despite the apology, she goes for it with a will, and the justification is a ringing declaration of the principles that underpin independency. She defends their beliefs since they're based on the plain truth of the Holy Scripture. She celebrates the choice individuals should be able to make to worship as they wished, denied the right of any congregation to condemn any other, and that they needed to have no pastors, as Edward, the Church of England and Catholics claimed. All the Lord's people that are made kings and priests to God have a voice in the ordinance of election. Therefore, they must freely consent before there can be any ordination. There is a strong thread of anti-clericalism here, attacking priests as those locusts which ascended out of the bottomless pit. I have to say that the Reverend Walters of my youth did share a passing resemblance to a locust, but I doubt very much he came from a bottomless pit, lest it be the pit of long and slightly dull sermons. But hey, times have changed. Gloriously, Catherine then refuted the claim that the lower social orders and less educated needed to be led rather than to choose their own path, everyone was able to create a good and godly church, whether they be tailors, felt makers, button makers, tent makers, shepherds or ploughmen, or what honest trade soever. It's another example of how radical Protestantism went hand in hand with political and social radicalism, without really intending to, I suspect, because it was not that Catherine was a social radical outside of religion. She accepted the social rules that placed men over women in secular matters, or says she does, but not in matters of conscience. I pray you tell me what authority this unbelieving husband hath over the conscience of his believing wife. It is true he hath authority over her in bodily and civil respects, but not to be a lord over her conscience. Chidley finished by challenging her adversary Thomas Edwards to a meeting for a verbal duel in front of an audience over the merits of independency. Again, with lashings of self-deprecation that she was a poor worm and unmeet to deal with you. It appeared that no one from Thomas Edwards was available for comment on this invitation and their lack of appearance. Catherine Chidley and many others like her were part of a rising tide of independency and they would become a force in the social, religious and political development of the mid-17th century. It's a little confusing in some ways, I should warn you. Independence gets used both as a religious and political tag and they aren't always exactly the same. So, you might support the group of MPs that identified with the views of the independents in the Commons without necessarily being an independent in religious terms. The rise of independency and separatism has consequences with a capital K. As time goes by, despite the desperate application of as much pressure and leverage as they could apply, the English Presbyterians and their Scottish allies find their objective of imposing a Presbyterian national church an increasingly remote proposition, though it takes them quite a long time to accept it, it has to be said, and they will continue to exercise a lot of influence nonetheless. The rise of independency will introduce yet another division into the commons. For the moderates, the prospect of independency, even more than Presbyterianism, will terrify them into the arms of the king as the upholder of social order. Among the reformers, there will be an increasing rift and conflict between Presbyterian and Independent. Anyway, that's all for the future, as indeed is the trial of Stafford, I'm afraid. If you wouldn't mind holding my hand as I walk down memory lane just for a moment, 
I remember writing the Richard the Lionheart episodes many, many moons ago. I was at a sales conference, as I remember, and instead of taking a picture of my bum on the office photocopier, smoking, drinking too much and arguing about God at four o'clock in the morning while trolled, all traditional sales conference activities for me, I had snuck away to my room to do a bit of writing. I remember worrying that I was getting awfully detailed. I was writing episodes here that only covered six years. Well, today, gentle listeners, we have reached the bottom. You have listened to an episode that covers just half a day, the 24th of February, 1641, up till about mm, just before tea. Sorry about that. What prospect 1913, eh? I'll be pushing up daisies before we get to the glorious revolution at this point. Next time, though, next time we'll cover the great drama that is the trial of Thomas Wentworth, Earl of Strafford, I swear it. Next week, Strafford or bust. Until that glorious day, good luck, everyone. Thanks all for your comments and all that sort of thing, and have a great week. <laughs>